Our text this morning is Acts chapter 10, the first 35 verses. It is a remarkable story, the story of Cornelius and the expansion of the gospel. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's word, it is holy. God's word is inerrant. God's word is sufficient. And God's word is authoritative. Acts chapter 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius! And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea, 
Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, for I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa, and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bless this, the reading and hearing of your word, that you would bless your word as it is preached, that it would take deep root in our heart. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. There was a recent survey that came out. Some of you perhaps may have seen it in the paper or on the news. They asked Americans about other religions, other faiths, other philosophies. And the big headline was that Christians scored on the low end of the scale. What that meant was that the average Christian doesn't know what a Hindu believes. Probably not even what a Muslim believes. And certainly what not what some of the other smaller in numbers religions believe. Now, of course, the newspapers attached onto this with great joy because it was an opportunity to to poke at the Christians. But I think we as the Church of God should be at least somewhat concerned as well. We should know what others believe. Not so that we might respect them as all equal ways that lead to the same God, but so that we might know what they know and believe as we engage them with the gospel. But you see, I fear in America today, we don't know what Hindus believe because we don't care. Because we don't know any Hindus. And if we do, we certainly don't take the time to speak to them about the gospel. They're sort of other. You know, these are the sorts of people that let cows roam around the streets because they think it's great granddad. These are the sorts of people that have odd beliefs. And their gods and the statues even look funny. Why would we speak to them? Well, that kind of a thought is the kind of a thought that the average Jew would have about you and me. You see, the average Jew would look at the Gentiles as being people who were odd, who did weird things, who did disgusting things. You didn't want to be involved with them. You didn't want to participate with them. 
You didn't even go into their homes. Until now. Acts chapter 10 is perhaps one of the most important chapters in all of the Bible. Because Acts chapter 10 is the story about how God expands His kingdom. Bringing it beyond the nation of Israel to the entirety of the world. And it's not just an expansion of the boundaries of the kingdom. It's God expanding out the hearts of His people. That the kingdom truly expands universally. So what I'd like us to see here this morning are three types of expansions. First, an expanding kingdom. Second, expanding hearts. And then third, an expanding mission. Let's look first then at the kingdom as it expands, at an expanding kingdom. Our story opens with a man named Cornelius. Cornelius was a very common name in those days. It was very common because there was a very wealthy Roman patriarch named Cornelius Sulla. And he freed 10,000 slaves, 10,000 of his own slaves. And when that happened, you took on the surname of the man who had freed you, Cornelius. So there were a great many Corneliuses, or in proper Latin, Cornelii, running around in the Roman Empire at this time. And one of the first things that a freedman usually would do would be to join the army. That was the place of upward mobility. That was the small business business atmosphere of the Roman Empire. That was the place where by your intelligence, your wit, your merit, and your hard work, you could rise up the chain. And Cornelius had done so. He was a centurion, which meant theoretically he was to be in charge of a hundred men. He was in charge of a century, which was a part of a cohort, which was a part of a legion. He would be what we might consider a modern-day army captain, or perhaps a major. He was an intelligent man, a hard-working man, a man who was trusted. But he was also what is called a God-fearer. Now, a God-fearer was a Gentile who would hang around the synagogues, who would participate with Jews in certain, not acts of worship, but acts of piety, charity functions, perhaps to hear someone teaching in the street or in a private house. But he very likely would not go into a synagogue, and if he was in a synagogue, he would not pray, because he was not circumcised, and he was still a Gentile. And you have to understand what that means. See, we think about Jews and Gentiles, and we lose it in the midst of the Bible. We think it's back in Bible times, and not that different from what we are today. But you see, to be a Gentile was to be a dog, to be unclean. Jews did not go into Gentile houses. You may remember that when those who sought to accuse our Lord Jesus Christ brought him to Pilate for punishment, they refused to enter Pilate's home. It's because they knew if they even went into his house, they would be defiled and unable to celebrate the Passover. You didn't eat Gentile food. As a matter of fact, we know from literature that you didn't drink milk from a cow that had been milked by a Gentile. And if you had a weaving loom in your home made from wood, was 
from a tree, from a Gentile's house, you very likely would burn the loom. And then find all the clothing and burn the clothing. Just to be sure. Do you get the idea? These are not bosom buddies. This is a wall of separation, as Paul will tell us later in Ephesians 2. But Cornelius sought after the God, the Lord God. He sought after the God of Israel. Because you see, Roman religion was a lot like our religion today. I mean that popularly and secularly. It was very spiritual, with no substance. It was a lot of show, but nothing really to sink your teeth into. And so very many Roman soldiers who actually sought real spirituality sought out the Jews and sought out the God of Israel. And we know Cornelius was good at this. He was active in this. He was a man of prayer. He was generous with his money. And he was pious. That word here for pious means very likely that Cornelius was a man who led his family daily in family devotions. He was a good and pious man. But he still needed God's preparation. You see, he was not ready to hear the gospel. For all of the good things that he had done, for all of the good that he seemed to be, he was not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. He was not even ready on his own to be a believer in Jesus. How different than what we look today. We look out today and if we see anyone doing any act of kindness, we just assume they're right with God. There's no reason to bring them the gospel. There's no reason to ask tough questions. But the Bible thinks otherwise. Cornelius was not right with God. He was not saved because he was pious. He was not saved because he prayed. He was not saved because he gave to charity. He needed the Lord God. And so the Lord met Cornelius and a man named Peter. Now, Peter was Jewish, but he was not a Pharisee. He was not as strict about these, these matters of Jewish-Gentile relations as others would be. We know this because in the last chapter, we meet him staying at the home of a tanner. Now, a tanner is not someone who lays on an ultraviolet bed. A tanner is one who takes the skins of dead animals and tans them into rugs, wall hangings, etc. A tanner's job is to touch the skins of dead animals. Something strictly forbidden by the law of God. So Peter is staying at the home, not of a Gentile, but he's cutting corners. He's staying at the home of someone who isn't exactly a strict observant Jew. Perhaps you even today have met the difference between someone who is strictly kosher and sort of kosher. You know? Strictly kosher is you have two sets of plates in case someone comes and visits you. Two sets of silverware. Sort of kosher is you serve someone a cheeseburger and they take the cheese off and then eat it. That's sort of kosher. Following the bare minimum. That would be what this tanner would be like. And you see, Peter would be used to the idea of people coming from outside of Israel to become believers in the God of Israel. But you always became a Jew first. The classic story of that is one you know well. It's the story of Ruth. Do you remember Ruth's famous line to Naomi? When Naomi said, stay, you don't need to come with me. She said, no, 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 no. Your people as my people. 
Your God is my God. There's a reason for that order. Because you didn't have God as your God if you didn't have Israel as your people. That was the way things happened. You became a Jew first and then became a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I wonder if today we have that same difficulty. Do we expect a preparatory step before someone can become a Christian? Do we expect someone to understand certain things, to follow along with certain regulations before we know that they are ready for the Lord Jesus Christ? This is a challenge that we face The more and more insular we are, the more and more attacks come from the outside, the more and more we are want to close our ranks, to worry if someone is exactly like us before we let them in to the club. This perhaps might be what was going through Peter's mind. And so God brings this sheet, this vision, and he tells Peter, Arise, kill and eat. And Peter, in good Jewish fashion, says, No, Lord, I know you're just testing me like you've tested others. I haven't ever eaten anything unclean. And twice and three times it's repeated. And Peter starts to get it. He thinks, well, maybe maybe pork is the other white meat. Maybe barbecue is not so bad. And he starts, but he's still thinking about it, because you can see he is perplexed, the text says. He's still working through what this means. Why is it? Why did God show me this now? Is it so that my culinary tastes would be more open? What is it about the cleanliness that is going on? And while Peter is thinking through this in God's providence, some men from Cornelius show up. Two men and another soldier. And they come and the Spirit says to Peter, you must go down and meet with them without hesitation. Now, this is an interesting phrase. Perhaps some of your translations have it differently. Without hesitation could also be translated without doubting, not doubting. It could also be translating not discriminating. You see the connection there? You must go down immediately. Don't doubt what I've told you. Don't discriminate against these Gentiles. Don't hesitate for a minute, Peter. And Peter, if one thing he has learned is you obey immediately. You don't say, well, I don't know about that, Lord. So he goes down immediately without hesitating. And so Peter is now prepared for this connection. Peter is prepared for what is about to go on. Because you see, God is expanding Peter's heart. He is showing Peter that he is to engage with these folks. He's prepared the messenger, and he's prepared the recipient, and he's prepared the message. God has prepared every part of what is going on here. And so Peter goes down, and he sees them, and he speaks with them, and he understands something has happened. The kingdom has expanded because God has expanded it. And Peter understands that what has happened here is God has no favorites. We need to hear that today. God has no favorites. You you may know more about the scriptures than others. You may be closer to biblical theology than others. We as the Reformed 
may be able to explain the details of the Scriptures and the power of the Scriptures more than the average Arminian. But we are not God's favorites. Because we stand in His presence not by our Bible knowledge, not by our doctrine, but because of the blood of Christ. Now, don't take that as close your Bible and don't learn about the Bible. You should learn as much as you should learn, but do not think that your standing is based on it. That's a freeing up. I can study the Scriptures all day long with a peace of mind, knowing that God wants me to do it. And He will not get angry at me if I don't memorize the second chapter of Romans. He will not smite me down if I cannot explain the theme of Ephesians. He wants me to be His Son and to know who He is, and to follow after Him. He has no favorites. Peter says this here in verse 34. He says, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. He literally does not lift up His face upon any certain person. Have you seen that? Perhaps you've seen that in families. There's a group of children in a family. The dad looks out. And when he sees his prized son, his eyes light up and his head lifts up. And it becomes obvious. And the others slump down a little bit. Because they know they're not dad's favorite. You don't need to slump, Christian. God has no favorites. God loves you with all of his love. He sent his son to die for you. Not for some abstract theory. Jesus Christ died for sinners. He died for the people of God. And if you profess His name and claim Him as your only hope, you will only find forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ, then you are indeed a child of God, as much a child of God as the Apostle Paul or the Apostle Peter. And you see, Peter has learned this. He sees the grace that God has showered upon others, and he realizes that it's showered upon him as well. He looks at this sheet with the food, and he sees birds, and he sees other beasts, and he sees in the the old King James, creeping things. We might think of them as crabs or shrimp or other kinds of insects that were unclean. And Peter realizes that he's no better than any creeping thing. Neither he nor we are the clean pets of God. We are unclean creatures that Jesus Christ has sanctified. And you see this, when you realize this in your own life, your heart opens up. And we need to learn that today from this text. You see, this text is about more than a lecture about how the kingdom expands from just Jews to Gentiles. This text is about how you must love those that you hate. You must draw close to those that you find distasteful. You must bring the gospel to those who now you think are not deserving of it. That's what it is about. You must set down hatred. You must set down prejudice. Not because someone in the media tells you it's the nice thing to do. Not because polite society bleeps out certain words, but because Jesus Christ died for all people. And we will dwell for eternity with them. And so we must take the gospel throughout the world. We must take it to all. You see, there are two ways to view the kingdom of God. As we look at those who are outside, we can look at it as many of the Jews did in the first century. 
standing within the kingdom, waiting for God to bring retribution upon them. Waiting for God to destroy them for their wickedness. To blot out their memory for all of their faithlessness. Or we can stand here with Peter, hoping, praying, seeking to draw them into the kingdom, to forsake their wickedness, to forsake their rebellion, and to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You see, this vision of the food is not really about food. Although I am glad that I can have barbecue. The main meaning of this text is not about food. It is about the kingdom expanding to people. And Peter sees this. Do you notice Peter's application to Cornelius? He doesn't say, you know, I saw this vision and I can come in your house, pass the crab's legs. He comes in and he says, now I see that God has made no people unclean. The 21st century Christian church needs to hear this. That there are no people who are unclean. Peter is just following on with what our Lord had said in Mark chapter 7. He said, what enters into his heart, not what enters into his stomach, is what makes a man unclean. And then there's this little parenthetical that Mark writes that I tend to think Peter, who was instructing Mark, said, write this down here. I want you to write, Thus he declared all foods clean. Write it down. Because it's true. Cleanliness is what God declares. Not what the Lord, or excuse me, not what we would declare. And so the kingdom expands. And by definition, our hearts must expand to others. But there is a final thing. You see, we can have a large kingdom. And we can have big hearts And we can also be sitting down on our behinds and doing nothing for the kingdom. You see, Peter was approached by three strange men, men he didn't know, and they wanted him to come and meet another strange man, a Gentile, that he didn't know. Peter could say, well, this is all very well, but I'm praying and I'm about to eat. And and, you know, I'm I'm on the great church tour. I've got three stops this week. And... It's going to take me out of my way to go down to Caesarea. And and Caesarea is such a busy city. Let's make, make an appointment with my secretary. Instead, Peter seizes on the opportunity. And he says, well, it's too late in the day to go right now. So you come into my home and I will put you up. And then we will leave first thing in the morning. And they go and they gather. They go down where Cornelius is and he has gathered together a small congregation. Now imagine that. It's a ready-made congregation for the preacher. And Peter goes right in because he knows that he can have fellowship with these folks. He knows that it is okay because God has shown him. But more than just okay, it's something he has to do. Cornelius knows this. He says, you must tell us what God has commanded you. Now Peter might think, Well, I don't know what God's commanded me to say. The Spirit told me I had to go. The Spirit told me I had to take some people with me for His witnesses. The Spirit told me that all food is clean, but the Spirit didn't give me a text. He didn't give me my three points. He didn't give me my cross-reference. What do I do? You see, Peter knew what the mission was. 
The mission didn't change. It's just the extent of the mission. The mission is to preach Jesus. And that's what he does. He preaches the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we will see next week. He declares to them that no person is unclean and that they are here to have fellowship together. They are gathered together. And this is not a new, this is not a new message. This is actually an old message, as Peter knows his Old Testament. Isaiah spoke of this. Micah spoke of this. Jeremiah spoke of the time when the Gentiles would gather around, when God would gather his people from Egypt, it says, from Ethiopia, from Cush. You see, the mission of the church of God is to gather together all of God's people. Not to decide who are God's people, but to gather them. And there's only one way to gather them. It's not by gathering them around in some vague fellowship. It's not by declaring to them the laws of the Jews. It is by declaring the Lord Jesus Christ and that salvation is found only in Him. And then true fellowship will flow. This is the mission of the church of Peter, but it is also the mission of the church of Katie. To take the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ out throughout the known world. We do it through our missionaries. We do it through the internet. We do it through our corporate gatherings. We gather together as God has done us the great providential grace of bringing the world to Houston. As people come from Pakistan and Thailand and India and China and Japan and various Middle Eastern countries and African countries, as they come here, our mission is to preach Jesus. It's to live Jesus. It's to show them that God has no favorites and that God calls all men to repent and believe. This is something that Peter will begin. And I think this is perhaps what our Lord was getting at when he spoke of the keys to the kingdom. We've already seen Peter open up the kingdom to the Jews at Pentecost. And then to go and to solidify and open up the kingdom to the Samaritans, the sort of half-Jews. And now Peter opens up the floodgates of the kingdom to the Gentiles. He says that the wall has been broken down. This is what the Apostle Paul will follow up on. We all know full well, Ephesians chapter 2, that by grace we have been saved. Through faith. And it is not of our own doing, but it is the gift of God. But I wonder how many of us read down in chapter 2 to verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus Christ has broken down all the walls, barriers of class, barriers of status, barriers of race, barriers of ethnicity. And he has forged together one people by his very blood. Do you believe that? 
Do you seek that? Do you like to see the kingdom of God expand? Do you long to see your hearts expand with love for others? Are you fervent that the mission would expand? That is what Acts 10 calls us to. Acts 10 has changed the church and it will never be the same again. We are changed and we will never be the same again. So we must learn. We must know what others think because we must take opportunities to bring them Jesus, to bring them the great truths of the scriptures. That is the call of the church. That is the mission God has given to us.